0: hello and welcome to the scope our student run and recorded podcast is put on by the student collaborative on health policy a student group that works with duke margolis center on all health policy related matters i'm sai a freshman at duke intending to study public policy computer science and global health this podcast will look into the aspects of personalized medicine its current clinical adoption and the challenges it provides to American healthcare. Later on, we'll have Dr. Rolf Snyderman, the so-called father of personalized medicine, come onto the podcast to talk about future directions. Personalized medicine stands as the next great advancing field in medicine. However, its application provides a unique challenge to the American healthcare system, already bloated and somewhat dysfunctional. Personalized medicine uses the rapidly advancing fields of genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, informatics, processing, and systems biology to create unique personal profiles to understand health, disease, and complexity with the goal of treating or preventing illness before it moves to advanced stages. In conventional medicine, major interventions to the patient only happen as a disease is further manifested and its burden heavier. This, in turn, is costly and leads to needless ill health and outcomes. Instead, personalized medical techniques involve screening to quantify a level of baseline risk and longitudinal health monitoring to give individualized treatment. This patient-centered approach is built on having mountains of evidence to create treatment methodologies instead of the current one-size-fits-most paradigm. Additionally, an important aspect of personalized medicine is its participatory nature as a patient is part of the team to improve outcomes and will have their concerns taken into deep consideration instead of simply deferring to the counsel of a physician. Reductionist views on health that emphasize the supremacy of genetics in determining outcomes are simply wrong and actually harmful. An immense amount of factors go into each individual patient's health, such as behaviors, personality, genetics, epigenetics, social determinants of health, such as socioeconomic and sociopolitical context, governance, macroeconomic policy, public policy, social policy, and also cultural values, socioeconomic position and class, gender, sexuality, race, education, occupation, material circumstances, psychosocial factors, and the health system quality and access. Hence, this multitude of variables makes any reductionist view simply silly. So why then in conventional medicine, many of these factors remain unaddressed and not inputted into patient care? Simply put, conventional health care is a trial and error system that leads to poor outcomes for patients in terms of adverse side effects, drug interaction, potential disease production of all... Effective treatment is delayed and patient dissatisfaction increased. This system doesn't make the most sense as the underlying cause isn't treated or mitigated. In his paper on personalized medicine, Rolf Snyderman gives the example of a 55-year-old man with coronary artery disease. This patient would come into the clinic reporting immense chest pain, would then be diagnosed, given drugs such as thrombolytic agents and a potential bypass surgery that include the installation of stents, Hence, a patient's death was averted. However, his quality of life afterwards would be lower than what it was previously, and the disease is still there. Snyderman states, based on what we know about the development of coronary artery disease, there is a clear-cut inherited basis for susceptibility, and such information is available at birth. Moreover, the development of coronary artery disease evolves over decades. This shows that actually the best possible way to improve the health of this patient would have been genetic screening decades ago. An interview with the patient regarding other aforementioned factors, acknowledgement of a risk profile, and the creation of a partnership that includes the patient to tackle the problem. This way, the issue of the patient coming in for surgery and facing cardiac arrest might have been avoided entirely, leaving the patient with a far greater quality of life. This screening, paired with the evaluation of environmental factors to create a personalized plan, is a novel approach that is being made possible by advances in medical science. Its power can be used to treat, manage, or prevent disease, representing the future of the field. The vision of Rolf Snyderman, among other preeminent figures in the field, is to create an integrated health system that includes genetic screening and testing, consultations to figure out environmental inputs, conversations with all members involved in patient care, the use of big data and wearable technology to collect information, and the implementation of artificial intelligence and machine learning to create algorithms to diagnose or predict the best course of action. However, It's important to note that this complete integration is far off, even though that may be the case. Contrary to many people's expectations, personalized medicine is here and has been playing a role in American healthcare system for a while. Case in point, a plethora of mutation-specific therapies for diseases have been developed. For example, take cystic fibrosis, a debilitating genetic disease that causes abnormal mucus and pathogen accumulation in the lungs and other organs. It's caused by a dysfunctional CFTR protein that's caused by a mutation in the CFTR gene. Drugs such as Ivactifor have been developed to treat patients with very specific mutations. These drugs can only be prescribed after comprehensive genetic screening that identifies the specific mutation. Another important advance is the development of personal early detection strategies. Different people, due to genetic, epigenetic, and outside factors, have different levels of health for a similar amount of biological agents, such as defective proteins. Drescher et al studies the utility of collecting longitudinal patient data on the levels of the CA125 protein in their system. And some of the studied patients later developed ovarian cancer. The study found that by screening beforehand and establishing a personal threshold, abnormal amounts of CA125 can be detected and prevention and mitigation efforts with regards to ovarian cancer can be performed far earlier. These genetic screenings, monitorings and establishment of thresholds combined with risk prevention and early treatment models is the emerging edge in personalized healthcare. Although it's very easy to jump on the personalized medicine bandwagon and tout admittedly well-deserved praises, it's important to acknowledge and tackle the challenges it faces in its widespread adoption and acceptance into the American healthcare system. First, it's important to address the elephant in the room, scientific challenges. These obstacles include determining which genetic markers have the most clinical significance limiting the off-target effects of gene-based therapies, and conducting clinical studies to identify genetic variants that are correlated with a drug response. Patient outcomes would actually remain the same or even decrease if proper testing and studies were not performed prior to the suggestion of a treatment or a drug. As Hamburg and Collins note, the right marker might not be identified, and hence the best drug might not be given, leading to improper treatment. Additionally, the prescription of a drug may be incorrect, and as the authors note, can potentially cause massive harm to the patient. The next challenge would involve policy and governance. The NIH and FDA need to develop new policies and guidelines regarding advanced genetic screening, handling of data, agent-provider interaction given the vast array of data, and more thorough checks on new diagnostics and therapeutics. Both departments have a, quote, shared vision of personalized medicine and scientific regulatory structure needed to support its growth meaning that while regulation must be created and maintained, innovation cannot be stifled. Not only will there be scientific and policy challenges, but also economic problems. This is because testing and diagnostic systems are very expensive, and data security costs will be high due to the large volume of information being stored and the establishment of payment structures. Obviously, there will be problems with the operational implementation, as well as patients and health systems, need to be moved on gradually to a seemingly invasive and complex structure that will most likely cause confusion initially. Although these pervasive challenges need not be addressed immediately, as more personalized medical technologies develop and systems move operations onto a more personal methodology, the problems need to be slowly addressed. Otherwise, the American health system risks decreasing patient outcomes and increasing confusion, leading to mistrust. It's easy to see that personalized medicine is a culmination of the scientific, medical, and policy achievement of the 20th and 21st centuries. It includes all aspects of a patient's life and takes them into consideration to develop tests and treatments. Along with these advances, developments in data science, cybersecurity, algorithmic development, and artificial intelligence have created an environment that points to personalized healthcare as the obvious next big leap for the American health system. It's important to acknowledge and slowly tackle the problems this immense transition provides. These challenges are not only scientific, but also include policy hurdles, economic woes, and operational obstacles. The dream of medicine to cure and do no harm is now seeing the next great frontier, and we will all be part of it. For the next part of this podcast, we'll have an interview with a distinguished guest. And welcome back to The Scope. Today, we're going to discuss an emerging frontier in medicine, personalized healthcare. In the previous section of this podcast, we went over the basics of personalized medicine, its applications, implications, and challenges. Now, I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Rolf Snyderman, who served as the Chancellor for Health Affairs and the Dean of the School of Medicine at Duke from 1989 to 2004. During this time, he oversaw the development of the Duke University Health System and served as its first president and CEO. Currently, Dr. Snyderman is director of the Duke Center for Personalized Medicine, which works towards developing the practical tools and expertise needed to bring personalized care into clinical application. Dr. Snyderman, it's great to have you with us this afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you as well. So before we jump into the several questions I had regarding your vision for personalized medicine, Dr. Snyderman, would you like to talk about the center's efforts and projects introduce our listeners to the work you guys have been doing?
1: Yes. Well, the Center for Personalized Healthcare at Duke was established when I stepped down as a Chancellor for Health Affairs and head of the Duke Health System. It was obvious to me that the delivery of healthcare at that time, and in many ways still today, was reactive, focused on specific episodes of disease rather than being proactive and try to prevent disease and, and improve health and minimize disease. So we established a center at Duke to develop actual working models. How do, how do you do this? The theory is fine, but how do you actually do it? How do you deliver it to people? So the, the, the function of the center was to develop such working models. And I'm happy to say that as we are talking right now, there is a pilot being conducted at Duke where we are delivering proactive, personalized, patient-driven care for the treatment of patients with chronic kidney disease.
0: That's great, Dr. Simon. That's really amazing work and mm-hmm. I think it's really important in the current moment. So let's jump right into some of the questions that I and many others have had regarding personalized medicine. So first, I know in many talks, you've described the future of the medical practice as personalized, precise, participatory, crowdsourced, portable, versatile, and interdisciplinary. These innovations in personal care involve vast amounts of data to create various algorithms. And many groups acknowledge that smart technologies and artificial intelligence is the emerging frontier in clinical care. So how do you suggest exactly that health systems and policymakers ensure transparency and reproducibility in algorithmic development?
1: Well, I think, as you've already indicated, transparency and accuracy and inclusion, diversity are all essential in the development of any models, any predictive models, because the the models need to be applicable to all populations and all people as much as possible. So transparency is, is essential. It is also essential that as we collect data regarding patients that we are very mindful of the population of patients that we serve so that the model needs to be representative of all the individuals that are going to be using the model. Uh, It needs to have that degree of diversity. In addition to that, the the, uh, data itself needs to be open to scrutiny and review. There will be oversight uh, bodies that will oversee the utilization of any predictive algorithms for example the the FDA has uh, very explicit rules for uh, approving the use of predictive models for healthcare you know these are considered to be regulated by the FDA so having number 1 broadly representative data with tremendous clarity of the number of individuals of different characteristics that contribute to the data and exactly how the algorithm was developed will all be very essential. And then before any predictive algorithms are used broadly, it'll have to be shown that they work. If the algorithms are meant to be predictive, then it needs to be demonstrated that they predict what they are presumed to predict. So I think all of these will give a a much greater understanding and comfort with whatever algorithms are used uh, to predict uh, outcomes or any other aspects of health.
0: Right. And so this is mainly indicative of a iterative development process that ensures participation from many different groups, as well as diversity. And also, um, not regarding algorithm development, but a key aspect of your vision and the vision of others regarding personalized care is extensive patient engagement, participation in the conversation and counseling. Key stakeholders note that communication with the patient and the care team is essential for the patient to understand and adhere to their personalized plan how do you think that scientific communication training with regards to disruptive technologies and data about genomics, the exposome and clinical event data and risk models should proceed? In other words, how can we retrain healthcare professionals to adapt to these technologies?
1: Well, I think, I mean, you're on to a very important point, And that is, as we think about the evolution of healthcare from being very physician-directed, you went in to see your doctor because you had a problem And the doctor said, take this, do that. And that was the end of it. Uh, It was your responsibility to go ahead and do it. Well, one of the things that we know is that that system does not work. We see the increasing development of more and more chronic diseases. And we know that individuals given prescriptions, the percentage of time that people will take the prescription the way it was intended is well under 50%. You know, so it it just isn't working. Uh, What we need to do as we move to a more proactive, personalized, patient-centered model is think about the entire workforce. And as your question kind of surmises, there needs to be a capability to have the provider truly understand the power of new medical capabilities. The technology is very powerful and very important. So whoever the physician is, they need to understand the technology. But equally important, and this has been missing, really missing up until now, is making certain that the patient or the individual is a partner in the therapeutic plan. Because without the patient, being deeply involved and committed, it's just not gonna work. So we need to have the physician or another individual that is working with the physician that truly develops a relationship with the patient. So the patient is involved, listened to and becomes part of their own care. So essentially, you know, some ways oversimplifying, it's kind of a left brain and a right brain. You know, you need the high technology on the part of the physician, but you also need the understanding, the compassion, the ability to engage, truly engage with individuals as well, because Without that, the therapy doesn't work without the engagement and the participation of the individual. Now, whether or not a given physician will do all of these things or the physician will be involved more in the technical aspects and there will be health coaches or other providers remains to be determined. But the goal right now is to train physicians So they understand the spectrum from behavioral interaction with the individual, compassion, empathy, all the way through to understanding the mechanistic background of disease and and all the different specifics of the technology in care for disease. We need to have them both. One alone of either side is not
0: effective. Right. And most people agree with you exactly that patient engagement is extremely key to this personalized healthcare care vision. So do you see um, this training of physicians on these kinds of topics happening within medical schools? Or do you see it happening more throughout their careers and their profession?
1: Well, I think starting with medical school, it has to start there. And I'm happy to say that when I was dean, as you indicated, I was dean of the Duke Medical School for quite a long period of time. We started to introduce different capabilities and strategies to have the medical students to truly understand the need for compassion and interaction with their patient. We even had retreats before medical school started and afterwards using mindfulness meditation so that the the students in medical school would start really uh, believing and understanding deeply with a lot of introspection how important it is to engage with individuals. There is clearly a movement in medical schools in the United States today to understand the, the importance of compassion in being a physician. It all starts with that. When we interview students to be potentially selected for Duke Medical School, the number one characteristic that we look for is an individual that is truly compassionate and cares for people. That is characteristic number one. If you don't have that, nothing else matters. So we need to take that, build on it, and make sure in our medical education, we never lose sight of the fact that the physician is there to care. You know, what I say often is we cure when possible. We care always. You could always care. You cannot always cure, Uh, but as a physician, you always need to care, and we need to train that and get that into the, the fabric of physicians.
0: That's a really powerful statement. I think our a lot of our listeners are uh, pre-medical students that are interested in going and into health professions, so this would be very good advice for them as they develop in their careers. Now, um, back to more about personalized medicine. Studies have shown that the social determinants of health, which include socioeconomic factors, health system, race, ethnic background, and you have additional factors like a built environment and psychosocial factors, among others, actually play a majority role in determining health outcomes longitudinally over a person's life. So how can these factors be quantified and inputted into uh, a personalized healthcare model in a non-biased way that leaves little room for personal judgment?
1: Well, first, you know, let me support what you just said. An individual's psychosocial environment plays a tremendous role in their health <clears throat> and greatly depends on an individual's circumstances. So uh, you would think that that is inherently obvious, but it has not been a foundational element of health care up until recently. And and we're just uh, starting to understand that more and more. The issue of chronic stress, individuals who were subject to to chronic stress, just based on who they are and where they are, the impact of that on blood pressure, on ongoing systemic inflammation is profound. The ability to have a nutritious diet a balanced diet to be able to exercise very much dependent on an individual's background so the first thing is the awareness of the importance of this the quantification is going to take time I mean, we're going to have to have more data have to have a better understanding of how uh, important uh, these things are and how we actually measure them but i'm happy to say that in the evaluation of individuals and things that we are doing in our center at Duke, the Center for Personalized Healthcare, we are developing questionnaires that allow us to assess and hopefully quantify the impact of a person's psychosocial background uh, and, and their environment on their health. And to try to develop standardized ways of collecting data to try to determine the impact of the social determinants and to factor that into the individual's personal health plan.
0: That's amazing. And I think it's really important that these social determinants and especially, as you mentioned, these psychosocial factors are inputted into key decision-making and patient care. And going forward with that, as you know, Programs such as the Protocol for Responding to and Assessing Patients' Risks, Assets, Experiences, or PREPARE, combined with community-based referral programs such as NC care 360, is emerging edge for helping to mitigate social determinants of healthcare risk factors. So what's the best way to incorporate things like patient values and preferences into a personalized model in the situation that the patient is adamant on going against the suggested route or is non-participatory? in the engagement. How does this impact medical care?
1: Well, again, very, very important issue. As we think um, about healthcare, now I've been a tremendous advocate of personalized healthcare, personalized in the sense that we need to adapt the the care delivery model to not only the individual's physiology and, and pathology, but their beliefs and their social setting, their psychosocial setting. So, you know, when I talk about personalized medicine, it's important to realize I'm not talking about genomic medicine, that medicine is determined by an individual's genes. The genes play a very big role, but it's a much broader issue uh, that deals with their environment and every aspect of them. But going beyond that, what we have become more and more aware of in the last decade is that large providers, providers such as Duke, that you know we're the dominant healthcare provider, not only in Durham County, but pretty much we're a dominant provider in all of the research triangle and five, six, seven counties beyond that. So it is our responsibility to understand the needs of the entire population. And in a given population, if you just look at Durham, North Carolina, you could find certain zip codes, Hope Valley, you know, various others, Crowsdale Farms, where the health is absolutely fantastic. But maybe right next to these zip codes, where it is an area of deep poverty and projects and inability of individuals to have access to good food or exercise. So you you may have one zip code next to the other zip code where the lifespan has a difference of 15 years. So not only do we need to deal with the individual, we need to deal with the population. And it's become uh, a matter of understanding that when we think of personalized care We need to think of personalized care in the setting of where that patient is, where that individual lives. What is their zip code? What is their surrounding? What is their capability of accessing healthy food, decreasing stress, et cetera, et cetera? So a lot of this, your questions are are beautiful, important questions, but it's important to know that we're in the threshold of major change of even recognizing that the issues that you've asked me about are actually issues that are involved in healthcare delivery that's all new so the uh, the people watching this uh, podcast hopefully individuals that are interested in either becoming physicians or going into healthcare you're going to be the ones that are going to be carrying the torch to make sure that we address the issue of the individual the individual setting the issue of equity, and all of these things are unfortunately relatively new in healthcare delivery.
0: Right. And I completely agree with that. And when we take into account the individual setting their socioeconomic position, where they're from, like you said, we compared different zip codes in the Durham area, you create a relationship with the patient as we discussed before. So when we incorporate all these values and preferences and different factors into care, what happens if the patient just doesn't want to follow through or is adamant about doing something different? How do you account in a personalized care model for what the patient values?
1: Okay, so again, that's absolutely critical. And let me tell you the way we do it. In the model that we developed in our center, the one that I said is already off and running, when we first have the interaction with the individual we spend an awful lot of time analyzing with them and having them begin to think about what is it that they want their health for? You know, What is it that they wanna be able to do that is worth potentially changing how they do things because it's worth it for them? It is very, very personal. Different people have different goals for what they want for their health. You know, you may want to have your health, but you're going to be an outstanding, brilliant scientist, physician, whatever. You may want to be the world's greatest uh, soccer player or basketball player, whatever it is. You'll have your own reasons for wanting your health. But what we do initially is get to know the individual and have the individual themselves start thinking what do they want their health for and for whatever they want their health for what are they willing to do to get the health that they want for their life so it becomes very personal as to the individual's preferences what we then do is have the individual set their own goal you know we don't give them their goal they set their goal for what they want to do we give them areas in which they can improve it, but they set their own goals. We then synthesize the patient's values and their views with what the physician says, this is what we think is your pathway to best health. These are the medications that we think you should take. This is the type of diet that we think would be the best for you. This is the level of exercise and on and on. So what what we do is synergistically, we blend the individual's preferences and values with the therapeutic plan. And then we have a synergized plan. You know, we have a, a conjoined personal health plan that marries the individual's preferences with the needs for their health. Now, it's important to realize that if individuals don't want to do this, they're totally free. I mean, nobody could force somebody in a healthcare system to do things where they shouldn't that they don't want. So a lot of the role of the physician or the provider is to engage sufficiently with the patient so they understand what's at stake and hopefully convince them or or have them convince themselves that the behavior change is worth it. Now, but again, we need to be very careful that we don't ask people to engage in behaviors that doesn't fit with their background, culture, economics, or various other capabilities. So it really is that iterative interaction of getting to know the individual, but having the individual be very influential in determining what they will and will not do.
0: Right, I completely agree and I think that's the power of patient engagement right you have everything a lot of different data and algorithms going into these models but then ultimately it's the relationship that the doctor has with the patient and what the patient really sees for his or her own care and their own goals. But on the completely flip side of all this, we have more of the scientific background behind personalized healthcare. So one question that many had is regarding tumor heterogeneity in cancer. So for example, cells within tumors, as we know, have diverse genomes and epigenomes, and they interact differentially with their surrounding microenvironment, generating intratumor heterogeneity, which has critical implications for treating cancer patients. Some studies have shown that tumors are composed of mosaics of cells with subclones harboring both unique genomic alterations as well as ubiquitous op- alterations, which means that they're common to all tumor cells. And this heterogeneity provides a large challenge for the precision and personalized treatment in cancer care. So what do you see as a major method? that can create comprehensive assessments on patients' therapeutic needs with such disease heterogeneity, and how can these be developed and implemented?
1: Okay, well, you raise another point that is very important. I'm actually pleased that you asked because I've been thinking about this quite a bit. If you go back 10 years ago and you say, how was cancer treated? It was pretty much treated, what we would say, slash burn and poison. That's the way we treat it, slash, burn, and poison. So slash, you try to cut it out, burn, you use radiotherapy, you use x radiation or other radiation to try to burn it. Poison, you use chemotherapy. And that was, in a sense, one size fits all for every kind of uh, tumor. And as you indicated, now we know by looking at the uh, genome or genome expression within the tumor, that we could actually see certain genes that are turned on, and then based on those genes that are turned on, we could determine or try to intuit what is the pathway that is driving the cell to be a tumor cell. The tumor cell has a certain metabolic characteristic, but that characteristic that makes it a tumor cell, either uninhibited growth or the ability to metastasize, is because a certain metabolic pathway is activated and others are inhibited, which means that it has escaped control. Now, if we could determine what those pathways are, and if we have a specific drug that could either block that pathway or uninhibit that pathway, then we have a very specific way of treating that cancer and that's called targeted therapy, and it's very, very exciting. Okay, so what you're saying is that that's all well and good, but in the tumors, there's a lot of heterogeneity, that some have certain genes expressed, others have other genes expressed. So the first answer is, we're just learning this, and we're trying to see how many different variations are there. Ultimately, how many different driver mutations or how many different pathways are there that enable a tumor cell? Is it five? Is it 50? Or is it 10,000? Well, you know, we hope it's something like 50 or less. And then even though there's a lot of heterogeneity within an individual's tumor, the pathways that are being used to make the tumor a tumor is somewhat limited it may be one two three five so once we determine them we give targeted therapy to those pathways so even though there's a lot of diversity within the tumors the pathways that are being used may be much less than the degree of diversity in other words you could have a lot of diversity but they all lead to the same pathway You know, as I was thinking about this, if you look at the number of languages that there are in the world, but even despite the language, what they are describing, how many different words are there to walk or to run or to sit? There may be 500 different words, but the action is just one, running, walking, sitting. So the genetic diversity leads to an abnormality in using a pathway the number of pathways are going to be much less. And we're going to become smarter to be able to determine what the genetic diversity is leading to in terms of the pathway, and then focus on the pathway. So I think, uh, number one, it's exciting that we're even thinking about targeted therapy. Number two, it's exciting, but a little annoying that it ain't that simple. There may be a lot more diversity than we ever imagined. And then number three, it ain't that bad after all. Uh, with all that diversity, there's still a relatively limited number of pathways that the tumor is using. And once we understand what the pathways are, we could still target that, even though upstream,
0: there is more diversity. I think that was a great explanation. I think it really makes sense with a lot of different cancer research that's going on and how current models of personalized care are, you know, how people are thinking they can adapt to this kind of heterogeneity. As you said, there's similar pathways to cancer and metastasis. So that's all the questions I had prepared. Thank you so much, Dr. Schneiderprin, for sitting down with us for the interview. It
1: is a pleasure and very few things excite me more than to see individuals such as yourself excited about healthcare and doing innovative things such as you're doing. So uh, thank you for asking me to participate.